One of the problems of uh, working on children's ward is that you're exposed to about uh, hundreds of little hot-bodied incubators of viruses, bacteria, and parasites. And I should be thankful I've only got a cold at the moment, which <laughs> uh, is rapidly mutating to a man cold. So I would <laughs> like your sympathy, but I'm in good company, and there will be ministry afterwards. Uh, I'd just like to quickly pray. Lord, I just want to ask that you would, first of all, give me the strength to get through this, not to falter in my words. But if I do, Lord, I just want to pray that, if nothing else happens, that we meet with you, Jesus, today. That we would learn something of you. And that you would be here to meet with us, Lord, and to, um, to minister to us, Lord. So I give you this time. Oh, Lord, I just want to pray for uh, any prodigals here. It was... I think it was right that that uh, was read this morning, that you would encourage them this morning and that they would find their father with open arms um, this morning, I pray. So help me and help us all. Amen. <laughs> okay, we're doing the series on... I'm going to check if this works. Yes, it is. Uh, people who've met with Jesus, and I've been given the man with a withered hand, which is a great title. So if you'd like to turn to Mark 3, 1 to 6. And while you're doing that, I'm just going to explain that picture. I often talk about this, but I've been very fortunate to go to Israel. And that picture was taken in Nazareth, where they have a mock-up of a first century synagogue. So I thought it useful just to put it up there to give you a, a little visual aid to what's actually happening. This is the kind of setting for this scripture. I'll read. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Okay. So I think this whole series is about people who've met with Jesus I think the purpose is for us to meet Jesus, to find out by putting ourselves in the shoes of the people who've met him, to actually meet him ourselves. Um, and that is my aim today, my simple aim. I, I will pick out uh, three particular points, um, but if you only remember one, uh, it'll go, it's going to be this one. And from the training I've had on public speaking, uh, you always, it's advised, if you want to take home message, put it at the start, somewhere in the middle, and at the end. <laughs> so you can forget everything else, but pay attention for the first five minutes, and you can fall asleep for the rest. He's good. Jesus is good. 
What is good? I was meditating on Friday night over a piece of Gruyere cheese and a nice pot of rather large olives with sort of sun-dried tomatoes, and I was meditating on how food is good. <laughs> um, the word good is used a lot for, for very many things. We say it all the time. But is this what we're getting at? And are we comparing God to a piece of Gruyere cheese? No, we're not. In Mark 10:18, when the rich uh, young ruler came up to Jesus, um, he called him good. Jesus challenged him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus knew full well who he was. He wasn't saying, oh no, only, only my father's good. But he was stretching this young man to sort of see, do you know who you're talking to here? <laughs> so we're talking about something else, something that God is. God is good and only God is good. Now I found this very useful because how do you define good? I couldn't do it. Um, so I found someone a lot smarter, <laughs> a lot more gifted than me, Mr. Tozer. And I'd just like to read something out of his book, uh, The Knowledge of the Holy, about uh, explaining what the goodness of God actually means. When Christian theology says that God is good, it is not the same as saying that he is righteous or holy. The goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude to all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. <laughs> this is the goodness of God. It is something completely intrinsic in him. God is good. Goodness is God. <laughs> you can't separate the two. Now, I thought another definition, why not throw it in there? The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good. He's the ultimate. And all that God is and does is worthy of approval. And obviously we know that whoever has seen the good God, um, or rather the other way around, whoever has seen Jesus has seen the good God, that Jesus is also good. So if all Jesus is and does is good, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for a prodigal? It means he's already there with his arms wide open. He's already prepared for you. I still on occasion struggle with this <laughs> to think, oh no, I've sinned again. I'm going to have to leave it for a few days before I try and see him again. <laughs> before I try. Perhaps you'll forget. Um, no. He's instantly ready for me. He's looking for me to come back. Um, this is the kind of Jesus who is in this story. So as I, before we actually get into the meat, <laughs> this is the man who is in the center of this story. 
he is already inclined to do the best for everybody there and for the man who is there. Okay. I like pictures. <laughs> I've also been to Capernaum. And if you can see the structure in the background, that's actually the synagogue. So I think Phil preached a few weeks ago and actually read about how a, a demoniac was healed in the synagogue in Capernaum. It's there. <laughs> and if you see in the foreground, there's a few houses, which may well have been one of, may have been Peter's house. So this is the scene. <laughs> I like visual aids, so bear this in mind. This actually happened. So, who are the main characters? And he, that's Jesus, entered the synagogue again. And a man, who had the withered hand, was there. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So there are three characters, as it were, in this story. Jesus, them, and the man in the middle. They are the Pharisees. And if anybody doesn't know, the Pharisees um, were like the ruling religious class who most of their time would only spend their time in Jerusalem where they could be bothered uh, to carry out their business. Jesus didn't get on with them very well for various reasons. Um, but they were, aside from the Roman occupation, the big cheese in, in Jewish society. So they're some very big players in this very small, uh, pokey little synagogue in the middle of nowhere. What are they doing there? G uh, Jesus was already well-renowned. Um, this was already into at least a year of his ministry. He had been to Jerusalem and he had been back up to Galilee. He had already run in with uh, the Pharisees once before. And now they were plotting. They were there for a good reason. If you did turn back a page, or just look back a slight few verses to Mark 2, 23 to 28, we'll see the sort of immediate concern that sort of prompted the Pharisees being there. Now it happened that Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. This would really have put a stink under the nose of the Pharisees. Nothing was more important to them. Well, one of the most important things to them would be the Sabbath. It's one of the most the sacred day of the week. 
and there are a whole load of rules involved with them which they had the pleasure of instituting and governing. Jesus couldn't touch their Sabbath. But Jesus said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. This is the second point. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. What was the purpose of the Sabbath? For the Pharisees, it was quite genuinely, I imagine, to believe that they were doing the most, acting the most holy way to make sure that they wouldn't uh, upset the, the, the rigid law by ring-fencing it with whole rules and rules and rules beyond what actually the Old Testament actually taught. Jesus gave a picture already into what the Sabbath was for. It's made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God always intended the Sabbath to be a day of rest, to be a day for the Jews to reflect, to sit and to meet with God. They were told not to work for that purpose. Jesus pointed out it's not about sacrifice, it's about mercy. You use the example of David. Um, if you can look back in its summer in Samuel, I believe, where um, he and his men were marching for days and had no food. And on the Sabbath, they went into a synagogue and took all the bread, which they're not allowed to touch. God didn't strike them down dead because <laughs> he was concerned for their welfare. And Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord of our welfare and our freedom. So this good Jesus is also very much interested in your welfare, in your health, in your resting, um, and in meeting with him regularly. This is the Lord of the Sabbath. In contrast then, we're, we're getting a picture that there's a, a battle. <laughs> They're squaring up against each other. On the other side, then, are the Pharisees who used the Sabbath for the opposite purpose, for putting a burden on people. You can read through Matthew 23, which I won't go through now, where Jesus uh, gives a rather scathing report about the, the Pharisees and how they were putting burdens on men's shoulders and not using a finger to lift them off. And how they were hypocrites. So he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. The Pharisees were there to trap him. We're going to trap him on this. We know he's already made one mistake on the Sabbath. Let's see if we can catch him this time. Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. He's no fool. And he challenges them on the very point that they were going to challenge him. Is it lawful to do good or to do evil? And in one sentence, he exposes their hypocrisy. 
they saw things from their blinkered vision of what the Sabbath was about and what rules needed to be followed. But Jesus exposed it in one sentence. (laughs) Is it for good or for evil? Are you wanting to save this man's life or do you want to do him harm? By not helping him is as good as doing him harm. Which is it? <laughs> it's tempting to believe in many shades of grey, and the Pharisees uh, probably worked in shades of grey, but Jesus was exposing <laughs> the truth, the baseline truth of black and white, good and evil. Jesus, there later we know, healed on the Sabbath. In contrast, then, the Pharisees were exposed. The Pharisees were plotting his death on the same day. Not only that, on a Passover Sabbath in a few years or a year to come, they would actually kill Jesus on a Sabbath day. I wouldn't be too quick to judge. (laughs) I changed that phrasing a little bit. I said, is there a little Pharisee in me? And I knew Rupert would laugh at that, thinking there's a small bearded man hiding inside us, but no, um, I've changed. Is there a little bit of Pharisee in me? Um, We can easily sort of jump down their throats about how they were so blind to their rules and legislation. Jesus is there right in front of them. Why couldn't they see that? I hold my hand up first. I uh, am a little bit like that. (laughs) I'm trying to think what the word is. I've forgotten already. Beginning with L. Legalistic. (laughs) Sorry, I've not had much sleep. Legalistic. I had a fairly traditional background. I was in an Anglican church, in a Pentecostal church. I thought I was pretty well sorted. I knew what was right. I knew what was wrong. Um, I went to university, and I found some different views. Uh, one of which was all my friends seemed to go to the pub on a Sunday. How can you go to the pub on a Sunday? <laughs> And I told them so, and I made myself a bit unpopular, and I wouldn't go. (laughs) Now, I'll get to what happened to me afterwards. (laughs) If any of this is seeming a bit familiar, it's because it is. It's Tony Smith, who was here about four or five weeks ago, uh, did this preach before, so I was a little bit annoyed. At the time, sitting there watching him in slow motion. Oh, no. <laughs> what am I going to do now? But then I appreciate the fact that I can refer you to his sermon for much more discussion on legalism. And it's encouraging in a way that maybe God had a purpose in saying this twice. I will discuss it in a very briefly here. 
but I'd recommend having a listening a listen in online to Tony's sermon. He gave us a warning against legalism, not only in the Pharisees, but in ourselves. The smallest thing sometimes, like not going to pub on a Sunday, but it can have consequences. It can blind us to God's goodness and his grace. By deciding on certain rules, we can block potential ways that God could bless us, bless others. I never went to the pub. I, never fell, I didn't have any fellowship with any of these friends. And I probably hurt them. I probably put a doubt in their mind. It's a small thing. But it can be devastating. <laughs> Tony put a lot of emphasis on the importance of legalism. And again, I'll refer you to his talk. Um, especially in the Welsh church, he was thinking that it is a particular barrier in that in many churches, the need to follow rules, the need to do things a certain way has put up barriers to being helped between working between churches. And it's something that we probably need to tackle. Jesus was angered by the legalism of the Pharisees. Angered, you can start to question, well, isn't he good? I thought God was good. Why is he getting angry? God is always good. He never changes. Jesus is good. The anger was for those who have been held in bondage. The anger was for the man with the withered hand who was being pushed down and being held back from being healed. Jesus was grieved. He was grieved over the hardness of their hearts. Jesus loved the Pharisees. (laughs) He loved them all. He was grieved for them as well as for the man with the withered hand. It therefore should provoke us to think, is there any part in my life where there is some part where I am grieving Jesus? Is there any part in my life where I am making him angry? There is no condemnation in Christ. We've heard that already. We know we have confidence because God is good. He loves us. He's already there for us. But we can put a stumbling block for others. We can put a stumbling block for ourselves. But I'll move on. His goodness responds to our faith. This is the happy bit. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out. And the hand was restored as whole as the other. There was a choice. There was a choice for everybody there. There was a choice for us. There was a choice for the man with the withered hand. Stretch it out. And in faith, he did. He probably didn't have much of a hand to stretch out. <laughs> but he did. And he, he had a hand because of the result. Jesus is the healer. My third point. He did it as a sign, certainly, for, to show the Pharisees. <laughs> you're, just, you're disputing whether what I'm doing is right or wrong. Here you go. <laughs> God's doing this. He uses healing as a sign. But also because he's good. He wants to. 
we can't doubt that God's intention is for our health and our welfare. I'll get onto that more later. But it may require faith on our part as well, like the man, as I said, and with perseverance, like the, the paralytic who we heard last week, uh, who went through the whole process of ending up going through a roof. <laughs> now, I did this last time. I'm going to do it again. Who's that? <laughs> My hero, and I'm probably going to mention him every time I talk to people. <laughs> and he's not uh, Nigel Lloyd, which Steve uh, mentioned last time. This is Mr. Smith Wigglesworth. And I just wanted to think, I wanted to mention a particular story. One, because it's good. And two, it's quite similar to the man with the withered hand. And it demonstrates uh, how faith uh, works. Smith was staying overnight. Um, he'd been preaching in a small chapel, staying overnight with uh, an old pastor who lived on his own who had no legs. Smith, in the middle of the dinner, just sort of looked up at him and said, tomorrow you need to buy a new pair of shoes. <laughs> the man didn't question it. He knew better not to, uh, to question Smith <laughs> on any of these kind of issues. But he got up early in the morning, waited outside the shop for it to open, and hobbled in on his two wooden legs and told <laughs> the shop assistant, I'd like two pairs of shoes. Uh, the man looked down and said, oh, I'm very sorry, I, we can't help you, sir. Oh, it doesn't matter. Um, please get me a pair of shoes, black, size nine. The man did, and as soon as the pastor put on the shoes, instantly he had two new legs, <laughs> which grew into the shoes uh, at the same time. I was thinking of this, obviously. It seemed to... Uh, <laughs> Appropriate with the man with the withered hand. Jesus said, uh, they shall do greater things than this. <laughs> it's a promise. Jesus made a promise that we will do greater things than what Jesus did. Smith is a testament to that. Now, do we have that expectation? <laughs> do we have the faith of that poor man with two wooden legs to hobble down and go through embarrassment of buying a pair of shoes? Obviously, I'm, I'm touching on, for some people, which can be quite a difficult topic, um, healing. What if he doesn't? What if I've got faith for it? What if everybody's got faith for it? And we've been praying earnestly, sincerely, for a great length of time, and it doesn't happen. I don't know, to be honest. But... Romans 8.28 tells us that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Even though we don't know the answer as to why God delays, we have to believe that God knows and that there is some intention. And we must never doubt that his intention is always good. Whether it's for immediate physical health and healing, or whether through purpose um, to help us in our faith, to help us being sanctified, to help others. If Paul is anyone who can 
be uh, an authority on suffering, he was. He had a hope that the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And I don't want to make light of anybody who is struggling with long-term sickness, but I do want to point you to Jesus, um, to seek him always in that, to know that he is good. If it's not for immediate health, immediate um, freedom from pain, it is definitely for your ultimate glory (laughs) and definitely for you to one day have a transformed body which will be always free from sin uh, and sickness. Okay. We're trucking along. I've mentioned everybody so far except for the eponymous hero, the, <laughs> the title of the piece, The Man with the Withered Hand. Now, I, I thought about tackling this sermon from the point of let's look at the man. To be honest, there's not much to go on. What do we know? He had a withered hand. (laughs) Um, Which we can draw some points from. It's his hand. You can't do any work without your hand. This man, in all likelihood, may have been a beggar. He may have been heavily dependent on his family and his friends for money. He wasn't going to be of any good manual use. He lives in Galilee where there are fishermen, there are builders, there are farmers. Um, He probably wasn't able to do any of those. So he probably lived in shame and spent most of his life uh, wishing, (laughs) hoping and feeling sorry for himself. We know he met Jesus. And we know he was given a choice. Some people question why was this man even there? The Pharisees were plotting. Had they even brought this man along with them as a plant? (laughs) This man was sitting there under his own burdens and under the burdens of these Pharisees. He would be very conscious of these high, high (laughs) highfalutin. People in all their religious garb, sitting there, staring, watching, to see what would, what would happen. Jesus says to him, stand up. So at this point, he's got a choice. Am I going to take part and obey Jesus? Or am I going to follow these voices, these people staring at me? <laughs> I couldn't find anything else to say about him, to be honest. <laughs> I'll, so, the Bible often does that. I've, it, it leaves a lot of blanks. It doesn't tell you everything. And I think there's probably good purpose in that. I think, anyway, this is my theory. Sometimes God puts in some blanks so you can put your name in. <laughs> we don't want to know too much about him. Sometimes we need to see... Uh, withered hand man in us. (laughs) And I'm already coming to the end. I don't know how long I've been, but I wanted to make time for a bit of 
ministry time. We, each of us, probably have, in some way or another, a withered hand. Something about us that's maybe shameful. Something about us that we've lived with for a long time. Something that causes us difficulty. Something that may cause us to be looked down on by others. But we've met Jesus. (laughs) And if you haven't, you can this morning. We have a choice. (laughs) I'm believing today that God, that Jesus, is here to meet with you on issues of legalism, physical healing, and I think most importantly, if you've never met Jesus, (laughs) he wants to meet you for the first time. And I want to make time for all three of those people. Jesus is good. He's ready and waiting for you. (laughs) You can be assured that he's willing and wanting to meet you like the prodigal father. If you've never met him, I want you to meet him today. Um, There will be people on the side who can talk to you about that. You mustn't go past today without seeing him. (laughs) This man with the withered hand, we know he was healed. We don't know anything more about what happened after that but we know he was healed and he was released from everything that was a problem before. So I don't know if we're planning to have some worship as well, if the the band could get up and prepare. I'll give you this back. Perhaps I'll just say a a very quick prayer. And anybody who I've, I've appealed to today, seriously, take the opportunity to meet Jesus today. And so, Jesus, you're good. I can say that with all confidence and with all pleasure that I can come to you today, that I have you always there. And my wish is that everybody here, in one way or another, would meet with you again. So help us to worship you, help us to meet with you, and we bless your holy name. Amen.